Welcome to Giraffe Tango Octopus, Freedom for Humans with Kirsten Johansson. Kirsten and her guests are here to help you stop struggling with your own self-acceptance and teach you how to love yourself unconditionally. Now, here's Kirsten. Welcome to GTO Freedom for Humans, where we talk about the ways in which we as humans can free ourselves from suffering by practicing unconditional love, acceptance, and compassion for ourselves. I'm Kirsten Johansson, your host. And today, I get you all to myself. It's going to be my first show um, without a guest. And we're going to talk about how to use our challenges for immersive practice. Interestingly, as I was chatting with Aaron, um, our producer today, he shared an experience that was exactly what we're talking about today, even though he didn't necessarily know what we were talking about. That's the way the universe uh, sometimes works. We hear the very thing we need to hear, or we're presented with the very challenge we need to be presented with in order to practice and move forward. So I'm going to share uh, my own story um, of immersive practice based on a challenge that I was presented with and also um, a variety of the tools that I used and that I use every day to work through challenges. Um, And then also, I want to talk a bit about Giraffe Tango Octopus. I've been so excited about talking to all of the guests that I've had on so far that I haven't taken the time to talk about the name of the show and the name of my uh, coaching practice and my business and what that all means. Um, I do notice that when I'm speaking to somebody at the bank or um, somewhere where I'm conveying the name of my business, I usually get a smile um, or a little chuckle. And sometimes they will ask, what does that mean? And ultimately, the answer to that is the question that I asked myself Um, after many of the structures in my life that were tied to my identity had fallen away. So I was in a period of time um, where I was no longer in an intimate partnership. And that was after 17 years in a marriage and 14 years with another intimate partner without, without really much of a break in between. So I was single for the first time in my life. Um, I was no longer employed. Um, After 30 years of intense focus on my career and focus on promotion and focus on increasing my income and increasing my sort of financial position, I was not working, I was not making any money, and I didn't even really know yet what I wanted to do. I had been working a rigorous uh, program with my food recovery for almost 17 years, and I had begun to transition out of that, um, which has been a really positive change for me. But that was something that because of its rigorous nature, it was a weighing and measuring food plan. And it really, um, it, it was present in, you know, we, we, we interact with food several times a day. And so you know, when you're abstaining from something that you can actually abstain from like alcohol or drugs, that is a particular type of abstinence. But when you're abstaining from something like food, we cannot actually abstain from it. Um, So the program I was working had a structure um, that was what abstinence was. And I had been following that. And I, 
I did it when I traveled. I did it at special events. I did it in restaurants. There were no exceptions to it. So it required a tremendous amount of um, thought and planning and effort. And also after so many years was part of my identity. You know, there's Kirsten. She she's with her with her Tupperware. There's Kirsten. She's weighing her food or there's Kirsten not eating <laughs> because there's nothing available that actually works with my food plan. Um, my recovery had shifted. I was clean and sober for 31 and a half years. And then I brought cannabis back in. And so it just, it just, you know, again, that's been a, a really positive change for me, but it impacted my identity. Um, I was a lifelong atheist and that gave way to some, I don't even know what to call it. I'm going to call it existential spiritualism. Um, it's a, I have a strange combination of things and, you know, it, that was new to me. Um, I had spent about 15 years worried about my appearance and putting a tremendous amount of effort and resources. It, it was my identity was so tied to my appearance that it became like, you know, that expression, life is what happens, um, you know, when you're when you're not waiting in line or something like that. My life was happening in between cosmetic procedures. Um, and I stopped all of that. I uncoupled my value from my appearance. And um, so again, I that was very new to me. I don't have any children. And my last pet had passed away a few years um, before. And so there I was, you know, all those kind of labels that that a person might use to um, identify themselves had fallen away. I had been practicing unconditional self-acceptance um, pretty much every day at that point, every day, all day, like a special project. And I understood that finally, that fully being myself would be the only way that I could really contribute uniquely. Um, and also would be the only way that I could find true happiness and so, you know, that old um, recommendation when we're facing something that is scary to us, whether it's a, you know, a job interview or a presentation or, or, in, or we're meeting, you know, meeting our partner's family for the first time or something like that, you know, that, that recommendation to just be yourself, it actually is one of the best recommendations ever. However, in order to be yourself, you have to know who you are. And you also have to be, you know, willing and able to fully inhabit yourself. And so that brings me to the question that I was sitting with um, as I was thinking about, you know, what to do in order to contribute to other people as well as to help me, you know, pay for my life going forward. I asked myself, who, who are you? And what came out of me was the Octoraph. Uh, and I'm going to read a little bit about that um, from my website, which will explain the name of the show and the name of my business, Giraffe Tango Octopus. The giraffe is a quietly powerful, fiercely loyal, and when it's time to play, watch out for high kicks, neck swinging, and singing with friends. The giraffe's heart has three distinct parts, spans two feet, 
and weighs 25 pounds. The octopus, a smart, stealthy introvert, happy in the solitude of the undersea garden, as well as having fun with diverse friends under and above the ocean waves. The octopus has three hearts to power its main brain and eight busy, independent arms. And then there's the tango, hearts connected, moving in rhythmic unison to create a wonderful, unique, and unstoppable pairing. None of us is all one thing. Fully integrating and celebrating our unique characteristics and experiences will allow us to live our purpose and ultimately to find our own tango. So that's really what it's about. It was about fully inhabiting who I am and that all the old sort of human labels didn't seem to fit. And so what came out is a solitary octopus wrapped in a friendly giraffe. So I want to ask you, um, what's your tango? I'm curious. When I ask that of people, um, the responses I get are really fascinating. Um, so give that some thought and get in touch with me. You can you can find me at, on my website at giraffetangooctopus.com. And you can also find me on social media at GTO Coaching across most of the platforms and by my name on LinkedIn. I would love to know what your tango is so that I can um, read it on air. So there I am um, in, in my new little octoraph um, of a being. And it had been about two and a half years since I had traveled internationally, which for me was something that it was hard, it's hard for me to explain, but there was something about going and being in another culture with a language I don't understand, a culture that's brand new, with people that don't look like me, that don't sound like me, that don't, that don't live the same type of life that I live. That for me was always not just a hard reset for my stress level and, you know, all the things that kind of build up on us in our day-to-day -day lives, but I felt the most alive in a lot of ways when I traveled to other countries. And so because of the pandemic, um, it had been two and a half years. I had, you know, canceled this wonderful trip to Greece that I had planned. You know, many of us had plans, of course, that we that we put off during that time. So off I went um, as soon as, you know, as soon as things opened up enough, um, it was still quite a bit uh, to go through to travel during this time. It was December of 20. Yes, December of 20. Um, off I went to Belize, which was um, beautiful and wonderful. It was a relatively quick trip. I wanted to practice travel, traveling alone internationally. Um, I had traveled internationally um, for a number of years with my former partner. And again, it was some of the best times of my life. And he was a wonderful, we made wonderful travel companions. We didn't, you know, really bother each other. We like to do the same things. We like to, you know, really get an apartment and sort of live in the country and um, and explore and do a little bit of touristy stuff, but 
but generally speaking to just really relax and be part of the culture that we were in. And it's something that I didn't want to let go of, nor did I want to put off for a time that I would have a partner to travel with. So um, sure, I was a little bit scared and I hadn't, again, I hadn't traveled and I'd been isolated uh, for the pandemic. I was alone. I lived alone and my bubble was my family who were not local to me. So I did spend the vast majority um, of two years completely physically alone, which um, became very challenging and definitely um, had an impact on me. So off I go. And I have to say there were a variety of little uh, wrinkles on that trip to Belize. And the kindness of strangers is not only what helped me through those wrinkles, but it created some of you know, my most favorite experiences and memories. And that's where sort of the friendly giraffe comes in. I think if I look like I need help or I look like I, I'm lost or I look like I don't know what I'm doing, um, often somebody will ask me if I need help. And when I accept that help, I have just some of the most fun experiences. So like being lost in Belize and having somebody get in the car with me to help me find what I'm looking for. Yeah, there's a little bit of a risk there. Um, but, you know, I trust my spidey sense and um, and just had such a fun time. So I came back um, having been kind of rejuvenated and having some, some new life breathed into me. And about six weeks later, off I went to Malta. So Malta um, if you're not sure where that is or what that is, it's a small island um, right in between Italy and Africa. And so there's about a half a million people um, that live in Malta. And I had been carrying around Malta in my spirit, I don't know, for probably a decade. Um, I just had never, I had never gone there. I traveled quite a bit to Southeast Asia and and some, we, some Africa and some South America, um, not so much to Europe because of the seasons. And so Malta remained um, something that I was really interested and curious about. And so I went and spent, spent a month there. Um, I made a friend my first night and, you know, I'm coming off of this, this isolation and, you know, feeling really, uh, so almost starved, um, not, you know, starved in a similar way that if you're starved of food, you begin to waste away. If you're starved of warm human connection, in-person warm human connection, I, I had sort of started to waste away in a way. And so I made a friend the first night and I started to kind of perk back up and I'm walking down the street in the capital of Valletta. Um, I had just eaten a big plate of lamb chops <laughs> and um, this gentleman wanted me to come in and eat in the restaurant where he was working. Um, but I, of course, had already eaten. And um, we just had this wonderful chat on the street. And it it was long enough that we kind of scooted over to the side because we were talking and people were trying to get by. And. I don't remember all of what we talked about. You know, he asked me what I was doing in Malta and I told, I told him the truth. 
which is that I was felt drawn there and that, you know, I, I had wanted to live overseas at least part time since about 2008. And I wasn't ever quite sure how I was going to pull it off or if I was going to be able to pull it off. So, you know, I just thought I've been drawn, I felt drawn here and I thought I might want to live here. So I'm spending a month here in the winter to see what it's like, you know, during the low season. And so what I do remember, um, other than that is we were, we looked each other in the eye the whole time. We had this instant warm connection. And at the end of the chat, he said, why don't you give me your number? And I don't typically give out my number. Um, you know, the, the world can be a, a dangerous place for a woman and I'm pretty careful about that, but there was something about him that I felt immediately comfortable and I didn't even pause. I gave him the number. Um, and when I got back into Wi-Fi uh, that evening where I could see my messages, I had a message and I responded and we made a date and we went on that date and then we went on another one and another one and another one. And by the end of that month, um, as I sat on a long layover in Heathrow, I had decided that I was going to move to Malta. And when we return, I am going to tell the story of what happened when I moved to Malta, the challenge that presented itself, and the way in which I chose to immerse myself in that challenge um, in order to practice the self-love that I had been cultivating for several years leading up. So you are listening to Freedom for Humans, and we will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you tired of overeating, overspending, drinking too much, or being in relationships that drain you? Do you have invasive thoughts that make you feel bad about yourself and your life? Do you keep pushing yourself to the next goal only to find that it doesn't bring you happiness? You don't have to live this way. You can live a life of well-deserved freedom and happiness. Coach Kirsten Johansson is here to guide you. Book your free discovery session today at giraffetangooctopus.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Are you tired of overeating, overspending, drinking too much, or being in relationships that drain you? Do you have invasive thoughts that make you feel bad about yourself and your life? Do you keep pushing yourself to the next goal only to find that it doesn't bring you happiness? You don't have to live this way. You can live a life of well-deserved freedom and happiness. Coach Kirsten Johansson is here to guide you. Book your free discovery session today at giraffetangooctopus.com. 
Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Giraffe Tango Octopus Freedom for Humans. Have your own story or have questions for Kirsten or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Freedom for Humans. I'm Kirsten, your host. And before the break, I was just telling you that I had chosen to move to Malta. So after falling in love with Malta and falling in love with a Turkish gentleman, Um, I pulled the trigger and I want to say for anybody who's dreaming of, you know, living somewhere else, living in another country full-time or part-time, I, I was in no way completely ready. Um, I didn't have all the money I thought I should have. I didn't have everything set up the way I thought I should have in these, you know, when I envisioned doing it, but I want to live, I want to live now. I want to, I want to live life now. And waiting for everything to be perfect or to have everything in place, it can keep you from actually doing it. Of course, you want to have the basics. You don't, you know, you want to do some planning, um, but you also have to take some risk and um, it is, it is a leap of faith. So, okay. So um, that was, that was the end of February, early March, I came back and started preparations um, to move to Malta. And so here is the story of that. And it's called standing close to the flame. You arrive in Malta exhausted. You've made this trip several times, but this time you find it particularly difficult to sit on the plane for the long flight from Seattle to Istanbul. You pay for extra legroom and ensure an aisle seat, but it does not seem to matter. You twist and turn and shift in your assigned area to no avail. You are healing a biopsy taken from right near your tailbone. It is thankfully benign, but has been painful and difficult to heal, as every time you sit, your tailbone presses into the wound. You bring an extra seat cushion with a cutout for your tailbone, which alleviates some of the pressure, making it more bearable. It will take the better part of four months to heal this tiny, scooped-out crater. Your methods for managing your internal dialogue elude you as you tamp down the compulsion to throw open the door mid-air and leap from the plane. Oh, the power of the mind. Working through the details of your international move while starting a new business, vacating your condo, culling through and donating or selling all your possessions and packing your life into two 50-pound suitcases and a carry-on have taken their toll. When you finally arrive at the small, now familiar airport, you fall into the arms of your partner, E. Ashkim, come, he says, taking your suitcases and calling a bolt to zip you to your village about 20 minutes away, where the big apartment you will share awaits. The separation over the last several months has been difficult and you are starving for the physical closeness with him that is medicinal and calming for you, ratcheting your anxiety down sometimes to undetectable levels. He is compact to your lankiness, creating a perfect snuggle ratio. By Monday morning, less than 48 hours from your arrival, your throat is sore. 
You mention it and take a rapid COVID test. It is negative. You feel worse over the next two days, but push yourself to be productive. You unpack as much as possible and make a list of what you need in order to have a place for your things and feel like you're at home. You tell him you are feeling unwell. You keep telling him. He doesn't seem to understand or accept this, however. You've known each other four months at this point, spending just over one of those months together, stretched over two trips. Everything you experience with each other is going to be new and potentially surprising. His lack of acceptance of the truth of your unwellness eventually cracks open your emotions and you break down. You do not feel seen, understood, or believed. He reiterates his strategy for interacting with people who are ill, which is to ignore their sickness and focus on other things. You've heard him speak about this before, but had not realized it was being applied to you. This does not work for you. When you're experiencing acute illness, you need it acknowledged. You explain this. When your next COVID test is positive, he still tries to spin scenarios in which the positive test is wrong. His best friend, young and healthy, died of COVID. You don't know how this is impacting him as he sees you now. You reiterate, quote, I'm unwell and I have COVID. Once all doubt is removed, you do all the things that need to be done. You sleep in separate rooms. You mask. You keep at least six feet of distance between you. The apartment, large for just the two of you, is a blessing. You're somewhat surprised at how begrudgingly you do these things. Your desire for conversation, company, and warm human contact are very, very strong, almost overwhelming. You spent the vast majority of the last two years alone, save for the recent time at your mom's, and are still trying to fill the bone-dry well with which you were left. Even for someone who enjoys solitude as much as you do, physical isolation for that extended period left you with what you call isolation sickness. Now... You are finally here with your partner and you desperately want and need intimacy and physical closeness. As with most things these days, while you are not happy to have COVID, you are grateful to have gained this perspective and empathy. COVID is lonely. E shifts from denying your illness to using his available time at home before he leaves for his job and hospitality to take care of you. He lets you sleep late and then wakes you up for breakfast he's prepared a Turkish breakfast of cheese, almonds, hazelnuts, peppers, tomatoes, apples, apricots, prunes, olives, and your favorite fig omelet that his mom made for him and his eight siblings when they were young. He makes a very strong medicinal tea from lemon, ginger, cinnamon, and you're not sure what else. You eat dutifully and drink the health tea throughout the day. You have the requisite sore throat, fever, body aches, and fatigue. Your time with COVID is made more difficult by your lack of acceptance of your reality. You want it to be over so you can get on with the life the two of you planned those months apart. Comparison is at the root of suffering and simply wishing this situation to be different and wishing to be well and test negative before your body has finished with the virus makes it feel endless. By the time you finally get a negative test, which you examine in every light imaginable searching for confirmation of its efficacy, you set about washing all the linens in the apartment, and when E returns home from work that night, you throw your arms around him and assure him that it is gone and everything is clean. He is dubious. He has repeated to you several times, ask him, if I get it, 
Who will take care of us? He acquiesces, and you wrap yourself around him like an octopus that night and hold on tight. After emerging from your COVID haze, life takes on some amount of predictability. You spend the mornings together before E leaves for work, and you await his arrival at night around 11 p.m. You wind down in bed, streaming something from your limited options, which makes everything just a bit more pleasurable and satisfying. This shrinking of access creates a peacefulness, a lack of desire for more. In between, you acclimate to this new life. Rentals in Malta are furnished down to the housewares and linens, so there's nothing much to do other than buy a few essentials, not the least of which is a yoga mat. You longed for it while you were COVID positive and masked up and went out and got one as soon as your symptoms abated. You began working with a business coach to help you build your new coaching practice. And the first order of business is to determine your coaching niche. What type of coach are you? After working through the exercises and viewing the videos, arduous in their length and volume, you land upon the answer. You are a self-love and compassion transformation coach. You're passionate about the transformative power of unconditional self-love and self-acceptance. You have experienced the magic yourself, the magic that gave you the vision and courage to move here to Malta and to change and let go of nearly every facet of your previous life so that you can begin anew. It's hot. This is the remark made by everyone, even the Maltese, during these intensely sweaty summer months. The heat and humidity make it a challenge to be outside. You've been warned about this part of the year and now understand the caution. The days are long and slow. You work on your business, write and record your essays, and sometimes get drawn into a job search that is a reaction to the fear of going without income while you build a new business. You realize after engaging and detaching from this pattern several times that it is draining your spirit. Reading job postings that seem to list requirements that no human being can ever meet and sometimes applying for said job only to receive a rejection, either active or passive, is instructive. This is what fear does. Fear is helpful in certain situations but you have not encountered a lion on the savanna or a threatening figure in a dark parking lot. You are safe and well, and you have everything you need in any given moment. This fear is manufactured. It is brought into your consciousness by self-doubt. When self-doubt taps fear on the shoulder, it does so to give itself credibility. Self-doubt tells you that you will not be successful, and because fear has been brought in as the muscle, you believe self-doubt. Strong emotions are convincing. They make the voice of doubt feel true. But the voice of doubt is just a thought, and this type of fear is made up. They do not have to be believed. While strong emotions typically demand to be felt, and often this is the best way to let them pass through you and dissipate, sometimes you need to expose the emotion for what it is. Shine a light on it and dismiss it. And there is the comparison again, the comparison of what is with what your inner critic says should be. This is all it takes to shift you out of acceptance. You begin to use a mantra to remind yourself that, quote, 
Everything is as it's meant to be. The idea that life is easy or should be easy or that you're supposed to feel a certain version of good all the time or that things are supposed to happen on a certain timeline is simply not true. This manufactured ideal is but a reference point for comparison so that comparison can do its job, which is to make you feel not enough. As Malta experiences its high tourist season, he is asked to work doubles to cover the restaurants in the hotel where he works as a supervisor. You see him working to the point that his body becomes upset in various ways. He is exhausted. You miss him, and your beloved solitude spills into isolation. You connect on Sundays with your friend, who is managing a long COVID cough, having gotten the virus just a couple of days before you did. She is awaiting the disappearance of this cough to return to church, and the timing of these two-hour Zooms work well and provides you a touchstone. A cherished friend with whom to share the ups and downs of your new life. You have known each other since you were both 17 and have shared the roller coaster of life for more than three decades. Then a series of choices and circumstances land E without employment and without a valid residence document. You are both third country nationals and not given the preferential employment opportunities of a Maltese person or someone with European Union citizenship. You struggle to understand the systems and processes that he is navigating. He is gregarious, has a very strong resume based upon his years as a restaurateur in Turkey, and quickly finds a position as a supervisor at a new restaurant on the busy waterfront near the hotels. His new residence document is attached to this employer and will take nearly three months to acquire as the system is backlogged. He cannot travel out of Malta until the process is complete or he risks not being able to return. He works tirelessly at this new restaurant to help them set up and organize everything. He works morning until night. He comes home with more and more darkness surrounding him. He tells you that he is treated, quote, not human. He tells you there is something wrong. He knows and feels it. He is sensitive and intuitive and observant. He warns you that soon he will come home without a job. He stops laughing. He stops joking. He stops dancing around the apartment. He stops singing his various various Turkish terms of endearment to you, he stops nearly everything else while being enveloped in the hellfire of this situation. All the oxygen burned as quickly as it is produced and ensuring the flames lick at him constantly, furrowing his brow, contracting his body, dulling the sparkle in his eyes, turning his usually animated smile into a stern frown. I'm going to pause the story there um, as we have a couple of minutes before break. And I want to just talk about a few of the tools that I had started to use. The situation is is spinning up. <laughs> 
and it's going to get worse um, before it gets better, which is um, often what happens with challenges. So the first thing I want to mention about, um, about facing a challenge is the difference between working on that challenge intermittently and immersing yourself in that challenge. So I was thinking about um, what it takes to learn a language, for instance, and I've been learning Turkish. Uh, my partner is Turkish, as you might have picked up from the story. Um, and so, you know, I practice that Turkish every day and I feel, you know, pretty good and pretty successful and Duolingo is fun and encouraging and has all the things that, you know, clearly make learning possible and make learning fun. Now, interacting with Duolingo for, you know, 15 or 30 minutes a day while I'm learning Turkish is very different from sitting with my partner and some of his associates while they speak Turkish, trying to understand and take in and participate and be part of things. It is uncomfortable. It's challenging. It you don't have the muscle memory to do it. You start feeling uh, like you don't know what you're doing. And of course, you could give up, right? You could say, I don't want to do this. I don't want to use this challenge to practice. Instead, I'm just going to sit here and be quiet and wait for it to be over. And then I'll go practice on my Duolingo where it feels better. But when a challenge presents itself, Absolutely. We often want to turn away from it, but it is showing up for you to give you an opportunity. So the situation um, that is spinning up and is going to get worse provides me with much, much opportunity for immersive practice. So we're going to finish that story and talk about that practice and those tools when we come back. You're listening to Freedom for Humans, and we'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Connect with us, and we'll connect with you. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is on LinkedIn. Get the first word about happenings with the network, where our next live event will be, and what's up with our hosts. Look up Voice America on LinkedIn. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com 
You're listening to Giraffe Tango Octopus, Freedom for Humans. Have your own story or have questions for Kirsten or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Freedom for Humans. This is Kirsten, your host. And before the break, a little buzz there. Um, before the break, um, we were at a point in the story where I've seen my partner pretty much enveloped in flames um, of an objectively extremely stressful situation. So I'm going to continue the story. Your relationship is not free of conflict. It is not meant to be. Your previous partnership, where anything that might have drawn conflict was hidden from you, was peaceful but dishonest, and the chickens eventually came home to roost. The way in which this adversity manifests in E results in a palpably uncomfortable silence, alternating with a flow of anger, indignance, complaints, and negativity. From your perspective, although his situation is objectively challenging and adversarial, you know that applying a lens of negativity, victimhood, resentment, blame, anger, and various other members of the Doom Squad are making it worse for him and for you. You have worked for the last several years to redesign your internal life so that so that your default is one of acceptance and compassion for yourself. You use gratitude mantras to steady yourself in anxious situations. When your inner critic interlopes, you give it a quick and stern rebuke and send it packing. When you feel fear, you turn inward and reassure yourself. When someone mistreats you, you no longer wonder what about you would draw such treatment. You know it is not about you. And you care for yourself such that you can avoid the never-ending road to nowheresville that is trying to understand why other people do what they do. In thinking that sharing these concepts and perspectives will be helpful to E, you begin to have escalated conflict. Sometimes the amount of force and negativity is too much for you. It takes a variety of uncomfortable interactions for you to learn that listening when you can and separating yourself when you can't are the best options for you. It is like sitting close to the flames of a fire. Offering different perspectives, suggestions, and opposing thoughts is not helpful, not for him or for you. You try to introduce the calming and centering practice of belly breathing, and he absolutely comes unglued. He imitates this ludicrous suggestion like a human blowfish. He cannot conceive of breathing helping his situation. For you, it is walking into the fire and then being surprised and upset that you've been burned. Other times, there is problem solving to be done and your help is requested. The way in which you understand things is to ask questions and to keep asking until a situation and its facets are clear to you such that you can perhaps help or offer a solution. However, you come to understand that only a certain percentage of your words are landing. His English is conversational and far more advanced than your Turkish, but you are accustomed to a certain level of vocabulary and sentence structure, and you use analogies and metaphors and colloquialisms. When you're explaining or showing him how to do something, you encouragingly say, quote, there you go, 
to which he responds with wonder, where I go? You jokingly chide him that he is, quote, ridiculous one night. He responds that you are ridiculous. And after going back and forth several times, he queries, what this mean, ridiculous? Oh, my God, you have been prattling on sometimes spurring anger in him that surprises and confuses you. It now becomes clear. He doesn't know what you're saying. He doesn't understand your vocabulary. He doesn't feel supported. You're not helping. And guess what? This is not your fire to stoke or dampen. It is his. If you are to be of any help, you must shore up your own needs and then connect with him in a way that centers him and does not leave you burned. It is a careful, intentional dance to live with this fire and not get burned. There are a couple of explosive arguments. They are centered around his constant negativity and your unmet needs. When you leave these interactions smarting with anger, you reflect upon the suffering that they cause you. Hmm. If nothing much constructive seemed to occur, your suffering and you observe your relationship to have been harmed by the interaction, then it does not make sense to continue this. So you break this pattern soon after it begins because you can, because it's a choice. You're not run by your emotions unless you allow them to run you. Your main objective is to take care of yourself first and fill yourself with all the love and compassion you need. Then and only then should you give of the excess. You set about practicing this as well as calling BS on any comparison that holds the present in a less than acceptable light. The rubber hits the road on self-love when you are in the presence of self-hate and it is on fucking fire. You know him to have and understand self-love, but as is often the case when he most needs it, self-hate elbows its way in instead. You are reminded of how you felt when you were treated badly by someone you trusted. Treated without regard for your humanity, your life force. You see in E the consuming hurt, anger, and resentment. He has suffered many losses over the last six years. There are few, if any, remnants of his old life. And this is not the life he imagined he would be living at this age. Your heart swells with compassion. It swells with empathy and understanding. It swells with love. As the fire still burns, you focus on quietly caring for yourself and loving him with the extra cushion that always builds when you cease to overspend and under-earn. You hug him, run your fingers through his hair, rub his back, kiss his face, sprawl across his lap until he says, Ashkeem, you are heavy. You smush yourself up against him at night in a way that heals you from the hurts of your day and returns you to the pure and flawless reality of the present. The fire burns for the last couple months you are there. When your inner dialogue tells you it is a shame that you are spending your time together in this way, you remind that voice that you are being given a gift. You are seeing and experiencing each other in challenging circumstances. From the beginning, your relationship has been based on complete honesty, being ourselves, accepting yourselves, and accepting each other. In the days that precede your return to the U.S. to manage your own immigration considerations, E speaks a couple of truths that blow your mind in their crushing simplicity. 
after sharing a particularly bad meal out during which he complained from the moment he picked up the fork, commenting that it was not a good fork, to the moment he finished the objectively bad food, he raises the memory again a few days later as you are out for a walk. Yes, you acknowledge that it was a it was bad, but wonder about the choice to relive it. And he simply says, quote, I like to complain. You burst out laughing right then and drop into acceptance. That night, the neighbors are fighting, as they often do, and he bursts into the bedroom. Ashkeem, too much noise, too much noise. You again laugh deep and hard. He is fun and funny and teasable and wonders what you're laughing about. And you posit, quote, everything bothers you. Although the situation itself does not resolve, his level of suffering appears to lessen and he makes the adjustments in his interactions with you that you've asked for because they're important to you, but which you do not judge or measure. So you just feel loved when you observe and feel his effort. He acknowledges your kindness and positivity and that you are, quote, for him. And then he drops the other truth bomb, quote, you are kind, very positive, my beautiful, my Ashkeem, but I cannot be like you. The calming peace of acceptance, love, and compassion falls over you. You accept yourself. You accept him. You've learned to stand just shy of the flames and in certain circumstances can walk the hot coals without getting burned. Of course he cannot be like you. You don't want him to be like you. The gift of adversity is again your treasured companion and teacher. Acceptance is yours for the taking. So that was not um, how I expected those first few months in Malta to be. You know, we'd been apart and just dying to be together and missing each other. And then we're finally together and life happens. Adversity happens. Challenges happen. And they're always going to happen. Um, this human life is an obstacle course. And so um, I want to just go through a few of the tools that I mentioned in the story um, so that you can perhaps use these in your own life. Um, whatever challenge you're facing, think of it as an immersive opportunity to practice whatever it is that you're working on, but most particularly to practice self-love and self-acceptance. So the first tool um, that I mentioned was belly breathing. And although Erdogan was, was <laughs> not a fan, I have to say I use it so often. I, no matter the situation, doesn't matter what, what position my body is in. If I'm feeling anxious or upset and I need to become centered, I breathe deep into my belly. So you just breathe deep through your nose, put your hand on your belly. You want your belly to, to, to be rising and falling with your breath, not your chest. If your breath is up in your chest, that that's not going to do you much good. You want to really oxygenate your body. So focus on, um, belly breathing. And the other thing that I do when I'm belly breathing 
is I find a gratitude. So um, de depending on what it is, like, for instance, I remember standing in line in Belize and, you know, I'm, I'm in the crush of all these people and we've all arrived at the same time. And there's multiple ways of getting through immigration because of COVID and it's going to be a long wait and the heat and so forth. And so I was belly breathing and repeating, I'm so grateful to be here. I'm so grateful to be here. I'm so grateful to be here. And often we're doing something maybe that we want to be doing, but you know, our mind gets the better of us. And so bringing myself back to center with gratitude, I find to be um, helpful in almost any situation. And the gratitude can be pretty much anything, but it does need to be uh, meaningful to you. Um, the other thing that I mentioned um, is fear. When you feel fear, if the fear is not of something truly tangible, right? If it's not of, of a true danger to you, um, it, it may be manufactured and it may just be the voice of doubt. And so when you feel fear, um, first off, unless you're actually, there's a threat of something, you don't have to believe that fear. You can kind of go inward and ask yourself, hmm, where did this come from and what's going on? And what is it that I feel fearful of? Um, and is there really anything to be afraid of? I often find for me that, that there isn't, um, that in fact, the voice of doubt, um, or, or the inner critic, both of whom work at the pleasure of self-hate, um, have come in to, uh, mess me up. Um, I did mention, um, in the story also comparison. Um, I mean, and that's going to be the last thing that I mentioned today before, um, before we finish the show. Anytime you find yourself comparing, and I'm going to focus not, not so much on comparing yourself to other people, which is absolutely um, one of the things that makes us unhappy, but comparing your present to a present that you think should be that right there. It's so common. We, we often wish something to be different, simply wishing it to be different takes you out of the wonderfulness of the now and immediately brings you unhappiness. And so um, I'm going to leave you with that today. Thank you so much for listening uh, to Freedom for Humans. I'm here doing this show for you. You can find me at giraffetangooctopus.com and across social media platforms at GTO Coaching. I would love to know your tango. So contact me in any of those ways to tell me your tango and I'm, I'll read it on air. Love yourself, free yourself, be yourself, and dance your own tango. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We hope we have helped you learn to love yourself unconditionally and accept and celebrate everything that makes you, you. Tune in next Wednesday for another episode. And in the meantime, dance your own tango.